We talk about the Aspen idea, all the opportunities that you get to actually sit face to face, discuss ideas, all of it is so magical. I think inside rooms where people are actually talking about solving issues, that's where the hope is. Hello, and welcome to Travel Beyond, where we partner with leading destinations to explore the greatest challenges facing communities and the planet, surfacing their most inspiring solutions. I'm David Archer, Editorial Manager at Destination Think, and I'm recording, as always, from the coastal village of Dajingids, British Columbia, which is in Haida Gwaii, the territory of the Haida Nation. And I'm Rodney Payne, CEO at Destination Think. I'm speaking today from Revelstoke, British Columbia, where I live, a city on the territory of four First Nations the Sinaiks, the Sichuetmec, the Silks, and the Tunaha. On this show, we look at the role of travel and choose to highlight destinations that are global leaders. We talk to the changemakers in those places who are addressing regenerative travel through action in their communities, often from the bottom up. And we're actively looking for the best, most exciting examples of efforts to regenerate economies, communities, and ecosystems. So reach out to us if you have a story to share. Today, we're going to hear from Crystal Logan, the Vice President of Aspen Community Programs and Engagement at the Aspen Institute. And Crystal is also on the board of Aspen Chamber Resort Association. And right now, as we're recording this, uh, the week of June 26th to 30, the Aspen Ideas Festival is happening. Um, And it looks like quite an exciting lineup. Uh, This is an event hosted by the Aspen Institute that uh, brings together experts from all sorts of different fields. They have the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright from last year. There's talks about neuroscience, astrophysics, spirituality, corporate responsibility. The CEO of Patagonia is there. Um, other business leaders, like the founder of Audible. There's a lot of big names going to Aspen this week. And as we'll hear from Crystal, the Aspen Institute seems to be all about the power of face-to-face meetings in an environment where people of diverse backgrounds and, and expertises are treated equally and equitably. You know, Crystal will, will describe their philosophy, but uh, they have this sort of round tables, round rooms, trying to provide access to people regardless of income. It sounds like a really good environment for destination management workshops, doesn't it? I think we can learn a lot from the way the Aspen Institute brings diverse perspectives together to have really constructive discourse. And it's, it's baked into their processes and the way they work. And if you think about destination management, really what you're trying to do is understand the various challenges and uh, critical issues for a place and draw out all of the different perspectives and, and solutions that exist within that place. So uh, I think there's a lot that destinations and destination leaders can learn from organizations like the Aspen Institute. Yeah, and, and the Institute is hosting leaders from around the world. It's also hosting some community planning events and um, trying to provide a platform for, for locals to make their community better. And I think that's an inspiring part of this this operation as well. The Aspen Institute also reminds me of how Travel is great for spreading ideas and 
meetings are where those ideas can can commingle. Yeah, I think the Aspen Institute is a really great example of how people, when they come together, can spread ideas quickly. And it's because of the very thing that the travel experience enables, which is the meeting of people and the clashing of cultures that results in transformational learning and those that learning getting taken home with you and, and hopefully applied. And I love thinking about that because it's one of the things that only travel can do in such an immersive way to open people's minds and spread ideas. Yeah, and, and we'll hear more about that now from Crystal Logan, Vice President of Aspen Community Programs and Engagement at the Aspen Institute. Can you tell me your name and what you do? I'm Crystal Logan. I'm the Vice President of Aspen Community Programs and Engagement at the Aspen Institute. And what is your favorite season in Aspen? Oh gosh, I would say summer. It's every season is great, but summer is is my favorite. And you're obviously very busy right now getting ready for an important event coming up. How do you like to spend your time outside of work? I love uh, hiking, biking, spending time with family, walking our dog. (laughs) And you actually grew up here in Aspen. I found Yes, yes. Grew up here in the valley. I grew up in Basalt, a little town down the road from here. What changes have you seen over your lifetime here? Constant change, but... Uh, since we have such strict growth controls here in the upper valley, uh, I would say a lot has actually stayed the same because we've preserved so much open space and, and all of that. But, you know, it's a pretty um, dynamic community. A lot of people move in, a lot of people move out. So obviously I've met a lot of amazing people over the years and some have stayed and some have gone. And I would say on the whole, uh, everything is better progress is better. And Aspen's economy is obviously very closely intertwined with the tourism economy. How do you feel about tourism? I love tourism because we wouldn't be able to function in a community like this without tourism. I feel like, to me, tourism is sharing the amazing abundance of natural beauty, abundance of snow, abundance of amazing arts and cultural opportunities that we have, our restaurants, our, our uh, amenities here are made possible because of tourism. And I, I think it just creates a vibrant, uh, amazing community to know that Uh, We have a strong base of residents, a strong base of part-time residents, and a strong base of tourists. And also, you know, the backbone of all of that is the workforce that makes the the magic happen. What are the challenges that come with being such a popular place for visitors to come? Uh, You know, like every resort in the world right now, um, especially, the challenges are you know, the, the being overloved, you know, over, over visited. And, um, I would say that, uh, we have done a great job of educating, um, 
educating tourists, educating locals, educating uh, everyone on how to love our community and love our um, resources most responsibly. Um, we're always trying to solve the issues to make it more livable for um, residents and also more easy to understand from the tourist standpoint. So uh, we as a community are constantly trying to, to work toward finding that balance. Can you tell me a little bit about the Aspen Institute and how it came about? That's my favorite topic. I love the Aspen Institute. It was founded here where we're sitting in 1949 with a um, large um, convening of people from every state uh, in the U.S. except for two. So about 2,000 people came here to Aspen, which was basically almost a ghost town at that point um, after the the mining days, we went through the quiet years where the, the population dwindled to just 600 or so in town. Uh, and so there were a lot of buildings and the town was kind of in disrepair. And miraculously, our founders uh, thought about the idea of, after World War II, bringing people together to heal after that horrendous war. They wanted to, instead of convening people in Chicago or a large city, they wanted to bring people off the beaten path and convene in a place that is quieter and more uh, connected to the natural beauty. So... Amazingly, they chose Aspen, Colorado, which had been a booming cosmopolitan mining city in the 1880s, 12,000 residents back then, railroads, two railroads coming into town. We had bowling alleys and schools and, you know, the, the first electric lights in the state. I mean, it was one of the largest cities in the state in the 1880s. And when silver was demonetized, it was plunged into a, a recession and uh, then it then began the quiet years. So in 49, uh, to bring 2,000 people here was uh, an act of amazing vision. And it was a festival of ideas, a festival of music, a festival of people coming together to talk about how can we move forward after this devastating war? And how can we move forward together? especially based on, you know, human values. So uh, that was the spark and that was the seed. And the following year, the Aspen Institute for Humanistic Studies was formed officially. It has always been, but is now a convening organization. We are now uh, almost 75 years old and uh, we're an international uh, nonprofit organization studying various topics, hosting leadership seminars, and now hosting just a dizzying array of events year-round all over the country and all over the world. Can you give me a sense of some of the topics that you cover and, and some of the places that you're running events and types of events you're running here? Sure. So we kind of split it into leadership seminars, public programs, and programs that are looking at various issues. There are about 35 different issues that we are studying using our very unique uh, methodology of bringing a diverse uh, array of opinions to the table to discuss various issues with the idea that we're going to come out with recommendations on how to move the needle on those issues. So 
Um, Energy and Environment is one of our oldest programs. For, we have foreign policy programs, we have justice and society programs, communications and society, which also morphs into all the digital technological advances that seem to change on a daily basis. Education, higher education, poverty alleviation programs. So there's just, a, a, as I said, about 35 of these programs that are studying various issues. When you think about a lot of the big sort of crises that the world is facing at the moment and you think about the time that spawned this institute, do you see any parallels? Yes. Some of the same issues are enduring <laughs> uh, and it comes down to humans being able to understand each other, respect each other, and work together. And that's what makes us so unique. We're a neutral convener. We don't have a political angle to anything. We don't have a preconceived idea of how various conversations should end. Our goal is to create platforms for people to come together with diverging experience, background, and viewpoints and give them the opportunity to um, work together, find common values, common ground, and really be civil with each other. So that's the whole idea, is to create the space where people can actually get things done while listening to all the various perspectives along the way. Can you tell me about why we're sitting in a round room? Yes. So all, everything that we do goes back to our founding. And the, the, the Aspen Institute, when it was decided to start a, a formal organization, there was a discussion about, you know, should it be a university? Should it be, an, you know, what, what should it be? And our founders, again, amazing vision, had contact with Herbert Beyer, the uh, Bauhaus master that had just fled Europe in the 30s and had come to New York. And he came with all of those ideals of the Bauhaus of, you know, interdisciplinary thinking uh, around uh, architecture and art, but also how we think about how space and architecture and art can serve uh, a higher good. He also wanted the buildings to uh, serve what was going to happen inside the buildings. And so instead of making a building uh, be the statement, he wanted the conversations and work inside the buildings to make the statement. So every building has a round uh, room, round tables, uh, along with Mortimer Adler, one of our other um, our intellectual founders, the idea was that Socratic method of dialogue. We're all equal. There's no leader who's sitting in front of us lecturing. The um, Everything that we will do in these rooms will be democratic and based on the fact that we're all equal. We're all coming with our unique backgrounds and perspectives. And this kind of room and this kind of uh, discussion uh, methodology will um, honor that, 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 that all perspectives are equal and um, 
all people are equal and it's our job to listen to each other and to start understanding each other so that we can um, actually make decisions for the, the greater good. When you think about some of the challenges in discourse, you know, not having enough diversity of ideas, what are the, some of the things that you do as an institute to ensure a diversity of perspectives? And also, you know, if you think about equity and inclusion, you have amazingly successful donors and brilliant leaders and people involved in dialogue. How do you ensure those ideas get out into the world as well? It is so important to us to, to have that diversity of perspectives and uh, it doesn't just automatically happen. We have to be actively uh, always making sure that those perspectives are at the table. And so whether it's funding uh, fellowships, funding scholarships, funding the actual ability to make sure that, that our, our discussions are, have diverse perspectives. You know, it's all part of building relationships and building our networks to constantly be bringing in younger voices and um, voices from varying sectors of the, of the um, society. Um, obviously, the most rich conversations will always take place uh, with more people of color and more people of um, diverse ethnic backgrounds and especially with uh, the economic, socioeconomic factors that are going on in our country and around the world, that is um, a high priority. That is really what my program does. We raise money to highly subsidize everything that we do so that there's no barrier to entry. And, uh, and it's really gratifying to, to, to do that work. And, um, it's really at the core of what we do. In a few weeks, uh, you have your sort of marquee event, the Ideas Festival. Can you explain what happens and why it's so unique? Yes. So really, the Aspen Ideas Festival was, was formed uh, as a, uh, to pay homage to that initial convening that we had in 1949. The Goethe Bicentennial in 49 was really called an intellectual Mardi Gras. It was, it was a, a dynamic, uh, exciting sharing of ideas with uh, people from all walks of life. So we were really trying to uh, replicate that. And so it is a massive event, um, you know, 400 speakers, hundreds of events, you know, concurrent uh, events taking place. And really the idea is to, again, give a platform to various leaders and experts on a variety of topics, uh, but give the audience the chance to interact with those speakers and have lunch or walk across campus or go to a book signing or uh, go to a dinner. You know, there's, it's all about interaction and, and sharing ideas. We have fellows uh, coming from all over the world who we scholarship into the festival. And it's, it's, it's hard to really uh, explain how large this event is. What's the feeling like in town when you have all these people from all over the world here? It's really exciting. It's very celebratory. It kind of breathes new life into us and to people who come as audience members to just be able to 
uh, feel like you're back in a immersive educational environment, but there are no tests. So how great is that, that you, you just get to immerse yourself? Would it be possible if people couldn't meet in person? Well, during the pandemic, um, our team did a, um, a fabulous job. I mean, I was in tears watching it from home when we were all under lockdown. There, there was magic in seeing the campus and hearing all the speakers, even though we couldn't convene. But obviously, when we were able to come back in person and convene in person, there's nothing like that. There's nothing like all the opportunities that you get to actually sit face-to-face, discuss ideas, um, see the, the audience reaction to various ideas, listen to the questions that the audience members ask. All of it is so magical, and uh, nothing can replace the, the face-to-face. Of all the reasons that you could travel, it seems like coming together to talk about the most pressing issues you know, facing humanity... Uh, is a very, very uh, justifiable and noble one. Have you seen examples of things that have been generated uh, through your work and the Institute's work that have been applied in different parts of the world? You know, there have been examples of um, a physicist and a, a medical doctor listening to each other and being able to use that kind of interdisciplinary approach to solving issues. So... I definitely know that ideas have been sparked where it has changed people's thinking about various um, intractable issues or, you know, solutions that have come from thinking about things differently. What impact does it have to pull people out of their regular environment and bring them to a different place? That is part of the magic. You know, it, it kind of I don't know if disarms is the right word, but it, it disarms people to to be in your, you know, sandals or your um, your athletic shoes and just comfortable walking across campus and you run into someone that you know from D.C. You find people walking together and having conversations that they would not have in D.C. The other magic about our campus, and, and this was by design, Uh, The seminar buildings are across campus from where the restaurant is. So after having a roundtable discussion, you walk out into this natural beauty and you're walking over to lunch or the restaurant for dinner. And that kind of interaction as you're walking and looking at nature um, creates its own special platform to really see each other um, in your humanity instead of as your necessarily your formal role in, in government, for example. Hosting so many people in one place at one time, are there any challenges you know, around capacity or pressure it puts on the destination? And, and how do you sort of think about that and deal with those? Definitely challenges, uh, especially now with, um, you know, workforce issues, you know, just finding enough employees. It's a it's a bustling valley and we have all the amenities that we need here, but they are all 
under stress during the summer because everyone wants to be here during the most magical months of the year. So, so definitely challenges. And while we face those challenges, it's also important to um, make sure that we're taking care of our natural environment and making sure that we have as light a, a, a footprint on the environment as possible. So that's both, both at the Aspen Institute, um, but it also in Aspen as well, you know, we, we as a community really find those, um, those values important and we want to make sure that our residents and visitors um, adhere to those values as well. Your experience with seeing people come together to, to learn and share ideas, what does it tell you about the potential of travel as a force for positive change? I think number one, when we travel, we, we leave behind our routines, our responsibilities, the laundry, you know, we, we, we kind of are able to live and be in a different headspace, a different mindset. It changes your perspective when you travel. I think it's important to take ourselves out of our daily routine, our daily responsibilities, so that we can rest, relax, rejuvenate, experience new things, but also think differently uh, and, and bring those ideas back to, to where, we, where we live. What do you think the Aspen Institute and Ideas Festival can teach other places? You know, from the simplest ideas of, you know, bike sharing, we, we, we make sure that every attendee has a, a pass so that they can use the, the bike share program. And what we've, we've heard from many people is, you know, I know my city has a bike share program, but I've never used it or never even considered using it. But after using it in Aspen, I went back and contributed and started using my bike share um, program in my community and and that has really been amazing and I'm so glad I I got to try it there so uh, I think that that those are ideas where we want to um, have people uh, learn from our values and take them back we also want people who move here to uh, realize that we have a set of values in our community and when you move here, we want you to adhere to our values and not bring um, values from, from elsewhere that don't quite fit here. So from riding public transportation to um, walking instead of driving, uh, those are kind of the values that, that we all want to live up to, that we, we as a community want to live up to, and we want to kind of spark others to find how enjoyable that is, um, and take that back with them. How does the Aspen Institute contribute to sort of Aspen as a community and the vibrancy and livability and connectivity? Mm. Well, since we were founded in 1950 uh, and we have a, a hotel on our campus, we've actually been one of the larger employers steadily through the almost 75 years of being here in the community. So um, I head up a program that is 100% dedicated to creating programs for the Aspen community to uh, take part in Aspen Institute convenings. So 
whether it's access to something we're already doing or tailoring something that we think the ins- that the community wants. We work uh, year-round to create those opportunities for the community to, to take part. We also uh, have just launched a program where we're applying a, a lot of our policy program methodologies to our local uh, region. So when I say community, we've got a, a valley-wide community of residents and visitors and commute, you know, people who commute to Aspen or people who support the economy who live in this 40-mile uh, valley and beyond. So with that, we also have you know, the same issues that you'll find anywhere in, in the country, you know, extreme wealth and extreme poverty, uh, racial divisions, issues around childcare, you know, finding childcare, you know, it's, again, it's a rural area and we, we, we have to create the underpinnings of a workable society to make this all work. Obviously the, the travel industry is built upon moving people around and when a place is loved, like this one, um, congestion can occur and it's very energy intensive to move people around. You've done some thinking on mobility here um, with the local community. Can you tell me a little bit about that and some of the outcomes? Sure. So we got together and we decided, you know, there are so many issues that we have to solve today, but can we look down the road and make some changes today that will help our future, help get to the future that we all want to see? So we convened a group of community members to think about what that might be, and we, we, we decided to focus on transportation and mobility. And we had a methodology that we wanted to use, but we also uh, wanted to bring in outside thinking. So um, we decided to uh, convene a task force of local residents up and down the valley from diverse backgrounds, to, to study the issue, but also to inform that process, we decided to bring in experts from outside the community to talk about what is working in other communities, kind of some disruptive ideas, not necessarily disruptive, but just new ideas that maybe we hadn't thought of. So that was really an amazing process because I have to tell you that when we would host these public events with transportation experts from around the country, we got huge audiences of community members coming to listen to people talk about ride sharing and ride hailing and how technology can really help us. You know, it doesn't have to be this um, capital intensive, infrastructure intensive solution. We could actually have technology help us and, and it's working in other cities. And we would hear from other experts saying, you know, if you widen the highway and add more lanes to reduce your congestion, those lanes will be filled up because of induced demand. And uh, so it was really a fascinating learning process for us as a community and as this task force. We were able to meet with those experts and, and talk with them in a roundtable discussion about, you know, could some of those ideas work here? And one of the first things that we did was create a framework based on our community values. So we wanted to create a values-based transportation 
system for our our community because we wanted everything to filter through our values. So uh, we have a value of equity. We, you know, we don't want anything to happen here that's not, you know, that doesn't have a social equity component. We obviously want to help the environment. We don't want there to be a solution that that fixes the problem but then causes a, a, a worse problem for the environment. We wanted to retain our small town character. So we, we created uh, these, these values that we could um, use kind of as a rubric to run all of the, the various solutions through. And then at the end of the day, through a ranking order, it was pretty fascinating to see that you know, here are the solutions and here are our values and then to see what solutions come out on the other side. And what came out on the other side was an integrated mobility system where if you implement all of the the five pillars of that program, it will get you to your goals um, to reduce congestion, to reduce carbon emissions, to um, increase social, social equity. So it's a pretty fascinating uh, process, all community-based. And uh, miraculously, we came out with, you know, a consensus on, on how to move the needle. And uh, so now we're kind of chipping away at, at making that plan um, move through the policy uh, decision-making process. So, Have you seen any early signs of adoption or things being implemented from the plan? Well, one of our first recommendations was structural. You know, there was not really one entity who had responsibility to fix the problem. And because we've got towns and counties and, you know, various other entities kind of working on the on the issue. Our first recommendation was to to have the the government hire a transportation planner so that this responsibility actually is someone's job. So that that was done pretty immediately. And then we do have an organization where all the government officials come together to make these decisions. And so they are um, using our plan as a blueprint uh, to what they're working on. So there have been a lot of um, parts of the plan that have already been uh, implemented. You know, we've seen some ride share, uh, ride hailing options come to the market, which has been great. So uh, there, there has been a lot that have come from our, our report. So we're really, really happy about that. Yeah, I've, I've seen um, a lot of free electric vehicles driving mm. around uh, mm-hmm. for people to ride hail and the, the bike sharing program is pretty, pretty impressive as well. How did the arts help Aspen to keep in touch with itself? You know, when we talk about the Aspen idea, which was our founders' idea that they wanted to, to create Aspen as a place where its residents could nurture their minds, their bodies, and their spirits. So um, the idea was, you know, to, to create the Aspen Institute so that people could have an opportunity to, um, throughout their lifetime, exercise their minds in, in our roundtable um, discussions and events. That's the mind part. You know, the body part is pretty obvious with the, the skiing and the hiking and the rafting and, and, and all the things that you can do to to nurture your body in town. And then the spirit, 
I think is, you know, music and art and culture. And we have an amazing abundance of free opportunities for people to interact with art in our community, whether it's the art museum or our new uh, buyer center here on our campus to all the, the art that's in town uh, that you'll find. Arts and culture has been a major backbone of the, the community since that Goethe bicentennial, since the mining days. You know, we have this beautiful opera house, which we all cherish as a community treasure. You can sit on the lawn and listen to world-class music every Sunday afternoon or during any of their concerts. So it really has woven its way through Aspen, our our um, quality of life here, and it's really key to why Aspen is so special. What advice do you have for other destinations that have something to teach the world? You know, making sure that you have a, an ethos uh, of what you stand for and have that ethos be manifested in a diversity that can create a diverse economy, really. I mean, our arts and culture organizations are a huge driver to the economy, both for jobs and for um, just economic vibrancy in town. And that is an amazing counterbalance to all the other things that have to happen in a town, you know, from government services to construction and real estate to, you know, the the tourist, you know, it all, it all works together. So the most diverse that, that, that the economy can be, the better. There's so many big issues and complex issues that communities and, you know, global civilization are facing in, in this moment. And you're a parent uh, with your son going off to college soon. And you've probably had the chance to be a fly on the wall for a lot of very fascinating discussions. Are you hopeful or frightened for the future? I'm hopeful. I believe that the difficult things that happen in our world get it, it gets people's attention and and I see hope. We work with a lot of teenagers. A lot of teenagers come through our our seminars and they value the chance to get to hear and just hear from their peers in a civil, moderated setting. And it, it opens their eyes to how important it is to have a diversity of perspectives when you're trying to solve issues. So I think inside rooms where people are actually talking about solving issues, that's where the hope is because they meet each other, they can understand each other, they can understand the various perspectives being shared around a, a table and they can understand the points of view and, and how the diversity of, of perspectives can actually make for better solutions. What do you hope Aspen will be like in 10 or 20 years? I think that the soul of Aspen really resides in the hearts of its residents, its you know, people who work here, people who visit here, that the soul of Aspen manifests in person-to-person contact, our ability to spend time in nature, 
our ability to uh, solve problems and not just give up. So I, I hope that that spirit, and I know that spirit, will live on. And uh, I just feel like people can't give up. They have to, to, to keep that spark of what makes our valley-wide community so special and to keep fighting for it. This has been Travel Beyond, presented by Destination Think. We'd like to thank Aspen Chamber Resort Association for sponsoring this season. You can find previous episodes of Travel Beyond and more information about this one at destinationthink.com slash blog. My co-host is Rodney Payne. This episode has been produced and has theme music composed by me, David Archer. Danny Garapi recorded this season's interviews with Rodney on site in Aspen. Sarah Raymond Dubuy is co-producer. Lindsay Payne, Annika Rautiola, Katie Schreiner, and Kaylee Wallace provided production support. You can help more people find the show by subscribing and by leaving a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Next time, we'll speak with Steve Scadron, Vice President and Campus Dean at Colorado Mountain College, who is also Aspen's former mayor. Aspen decided what it wanted to be, and it got it done. Some things are great, some things didn't work, but at least Aspen did it. See you then. And one last note about Aspen. I'm Eliza Voss, and I should note that we are recording in Aspen, Colorado, the ancestral territory of the Uncompahgre tribe of the Ute Nation. We honor the inherent stewardship Native people have for the land, waters, and air that our residents and visitors continue to have the privilege to revel in.